0: Today we're going to come to John chapter number 19. We're going to be thinking about the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus from those who attended to his lifeless body, those who oversaw his interment. And this will be the Pharisees, the converted Pharisees. Last Sunday, if you were here, you will recall that we began our journey to Calvary, to the cross, Early in the morning, really at sunrise, we began at the house of Caiaphas and we kind of walked with Jesus all the way through his trial and his scourging, all the way to the cross at Calvary. We began at sunrise and went to the cross. Today we're going to pick up where we left off and we're going to begin at the cross and we're going to walk away from the cross to the tomb of Jesus to see his burial just before sunset. And so from last Sunday and today, putting those two together, we will have seen the entire day on which Jesus died. Now another thing that you might remember from last week is that it was a chaotic scene. I don't mean to say church was a chaotic scene. I mean to say that what we were reading in the passage was a chaotic scene when Jesus was dying the Bible tells us that the earth was quaking and the rocks were breaking apart and and the sun went dark on that part of the world it really was kind of this geological chaos this cosmic confusion in the middle of the day the sun goes dark but when we arrive back in the passage today all that chaos is over And in fact, the only thing that you're going to encounter at the cross as we begin the text today is silence. Christ is dead. He's passed. His life is drained from him. The rocks are no longer shaking and breaking apart. The earth is no longer quaking. The sun is beginning to shine through again. And Jesus has died. Look at it. John chapter 19, verse number 30. It says in the middle of that verse that Jesus said, it is finished and then he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost, or he bowed his head and died. No more profound teaching from the lips of Jesus. No more words of compassion and wisdom ushering forth from those lips which always prompted people to say, we've never heard it like this before. No no more hand reaching to offer help and healing to those that are sick. No more hands raising up a dead little girl. Jesus has died in this passage. And those that are responsible for his death, or at least those that brought him to Pilate to have him executed, they know that it's late in the day on Friday, they know that Shabbat or Sabbath will be coming on in the next few hours and they want nothing more than to have this entire episode finished, over and done with as quickly as possible. And you'll see this as we read the passage. Look at verse number 31. After Jesus dies, chapter 19, verse 31 says, the Jews therefore, because it was the preparation So that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high, a holy Sabbath day, they besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and then of the other, which was crucified with Jesus. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they did not break his legs but one of the soldiers instead with a spear pierced his side. And forthwith there came out blood and water. And he that saw it bare record. And his record is true. And he knows that that he is saying is true so that you might believe. For these things were done that the scripture might be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again another scripture which says they shall look on him whom they have pierced. Now when the Bible talks about this, these final moments of each of these three men, Jesus and the two criminals, being crucified that day, it tells us in verse number 31 that the Jewish people who were presiding over that entire episode were very interested that the bodies of these criminals be taken off of the cross before the Sabbath arrived. You see that in verse number 31 when it says the Jews therefore. Now the the Jews being spoken of here is not every Jewish person in the world. It's not even every Jewish person in Jerusalem on that day. It's the religious leaders. In fact, if you turn back one page to John 18, you'll see exactly who they're talking about. John 18 verse 3 says Judas then having received a band of men from the chief priests and from the Pharisees, And then if you look at verse number 13, it talks about Caiaphas, who is the high priest. So what you learn in chapter 18 is that the Jewish leaders presiding over the the trial of Jesus and ultimately taking him to be crucified, these are the leaders of Israel. It's the Sanhedrin. It's the Jewish high court, a 70-member high court who would rule over all civil and religious affairs of the Jewish people. They were the ones in charge. And they were the ones who were intent on having their problem solved. And what was their problem? You see it in this passage. What are they concerned about? Look at verse 31 again. So that the bodies will not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day. There's their concern. Jesus is dead. The two criminals are languishing. They'll be dead very soon. And these religious leaders these priests, these Pharisees and Sadducees, the high priests, they have one singular concern. And it's that their Passover celebration, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, their Sabbath celebrations, not be tarnished by the presence of suffering, bleeding, moaning, dying or dead criminals hanging on crosses... Outside of Jerusalem. How boorish that would be. How unkeeping with their religious ceremonies. They were concerned the criminals' bodies just need to go away. And so they propose a solution. The solution is proposed to Pilate when they said to Pilate, Why don't you just break the legs of these suffering criminals? So that they'll die and then you can get their bodies off of the cross. Now I don't know if you're feeling the, I don't even know the word for it. I don't know if you can sense the absolute calloused, careless attitude of these religious people who just wanted the irreligious people And the one that they've condemned in the middle named Jesus. They just want them gone and out of the way. So they can have their religious experience. Now I want to say something to you. and, and, And if you're a part of Brookstone Church. I want you to listen to me very, very carefully. Do not miss what I'm getting ready to tell you. This is a warning. And this episode needs to serve as a warning. To all of us who practice a regular participation in religious or faith Expression. Here it is. Here's the warning. If we ever come to the place where our religious practices or our personal preferences become more precious to us than the people that our faith is supposed to reach and transform, then we have become Pharisees and we're no better than the men. In John chapter number 19, what matters is that we reach people with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that means that sometimes our preferences must be set aside or our practices must be altered in order to rescue people, then that is what must and ought to happen every single time. But not so in this case, we want to have our Passover celebrations, we want to have our Feast of Unleavened Bread, we want to go through Sabbath without the without the moans and groans of these people, and so would you just break their legs? I mean, can you imagine the brutality? Verse number 32 says the soldiers came and they broke the legs with a club. They just walk up to these men already suffering, already impaled on the cross, and they just break their legs. And the reason they do that is so that that when their legs break, they have no ability to push themselves up and breathe. And so death comes by suffocation on the cross. Because you can no longer breathe once your legs are broken. You can imagine the screams of agony. These already brutalized men now having their legs crushed. Verse 33 and 34 tells us they come to Jesus to break his legs, but when they arrive at his cross, they determine that he's already dead. There's no reason to break his legs. He's already passed. But just to make sure, one of the soldiers, rather than breaking his leg, verse 34 says, takes a spear and pierces his side. Now, it seems like a random sort of set of circumstances. He comes to Jesus, he's his, his already died, and so he, he puts a spear in his side. There's no sense that a command is given. There's nowhere in the text that says he was told to do this. He just does it, he just pierces his side with a spear. Why? Two reasons. The Bible, in fact, tells us in the next verses, verse 36 and 37, that these things were done in order to fulfill the will of God or to fulfill the prophecies in the Old Testament that pointed to the identity of Jesus. The Scriptures say in Psalm 34 that the Messiah would not have a bone of his body broken. And just as they began to break his bones, they went, oh, we don't need to do that, he's died. And the will of God was Which, by the way, you know why that's so important, don't you? Because Jesus was crucified at Passover when they were celebrating the death of the Passover lamb who had died in Egypt all those years ago. And if you go back to Exodus chapter number 12, if y'all are listening, shout amen. Don't miss this. If you go back to Exodus chapter 12, Moses said, take your lamb, your Passover lamb. The blood of that lamb is going to cover you and, and the judgment will not come to you. But you are to kill that lamb, drain its blood, consume it, but do not break a bone of the lamb. And Jesus is our Passover lamb and that's the reason his bones were not broken. But then the Bible also says in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, that they would look upon him whom they have pierced. And so he was pierced with a sword. I simply want you to know that God was so in control, so involved in the minute details of the crucifixion of Jesus, that these Roman soldiers did not do what they had been commanded to do. And they did what they had not been commanded to do all in God's working that event in order to accomplish his will absolutely as it had been foretold. Jesus is dead. His side is pierced. Now you'll remember from verse number 31 that the concern of the Pharisees and the the religious leaders was that the the bodies must be off the cross before the Sabbath. And so they, they then would set about now that all three are dead, they would set about the business of taking these bodies down. Now the, the, um, the normal course of action would have been that the Roman soldiers would have taken the bodies down and if there was not a family there to claim the body, which typically in this, these cases there wouldn't be, then the Roman soldiers would go from Calvary across the city of Jerusalem to the south side of the city to the valley of Hinnom or Gehenna. It is the place that Jesus referred to as hell. It was a low, still remains today, a deep valley. And it was where all the city trash was burned. They would take these bodies and they would throw them into the city dump where they would be burned. Along with the trash. That was the potential destination of the body of Jesus. But God had something better in store for his son. Amen. And so... He raises up two men to attend to the burial of Jesus. Look at verse number 38. Still in John 19, verse 38 says, And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, Which at the first came to Jesus by night, he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight, hundred pounds in Roman weight, U.S. pounds would be about seventy-five pounds. Verse forty, and they took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloths or clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden there was a new sepulchre, a new tomb, wherein uh, was never a man yet laid. There they laid Jesus, therefore, because of the preparation day, for the sepulchre, the grave, the tomb, was nigh at hand. Now, can I ask you a question? Do you ever give much consideration to this part of the gospel? I mean, have you ever thought very much about the actual entombing, the actual burial of Jesus? I'm going to say probably not, because most people don't. It's reasonable, really. I mean, our focus as we think about these events is always on the crucifixion. We really focus on what it must have been like for Christ to suffer and die for us. And then we always kind of leapfrog over to Sunday morning and the resurrection. We kind of have Good Friday services and then we have Easter Sunday services. And so we just move from the death of Jesus to the resurrection of Jesus. But did you know that the burial of Jesus, the actual entombment of Jesus, is a part of the gospel message? It is. 1 Corinthians tells us this. Look at it on the screen. 1 Corinthians 15, verses three and four say this. For I delivered unto you, first of all, That which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. That's the first part of the gospel, he died. And that he was buried, there's the second part of the gospel, and that he rose again the third day according to the scripture. So the gospel is not just the death and resurrection, it is the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, and it's important. We shouldn't skip right past it. We shouldn't consider it some uh, insignificant detail before the resurrection. I think it's important for a number of reasons. One is because it shows us, it demonstrates the complete suffering that Jesus endured for us all the way to the point of death. John 13 says, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them until the end, to the very end, and he did. He loved me through the scourging. He loved me through the beating. He loved me through the crucifixion. He loved me through the crowns on his head. He loved me through the spear in his side, and he loved me all the way to the grave. It, It emphasizes the fact that Christ loved us and paid the ultimate price for us. The grave is the demonstration of that. The entombment of Jesus matters because it proves the physical death that Christ actually physically died. He wasn't swooning on the cross. He didn't pass out and almost die. No, he was buried for three days. He did die. And maybe not the least significantly is the entombment of Jesus matters to me because all of us know that one day all of us will be entombed as well. Should the Lord tarry his return, we're all going to be put in a tomb one day. And that idea might frighten you. It might scare you to death. They're going to put you in a box and close the lid and put it in the ground or put you in in uh, an ossuary and and put you into a a wall and close the, the face of the door of that wall, and you might be terrified of that. Well, here's what you should know. Christ has been there. Christ has gone to the tomb, and he's conquered the grave. So the entombment, the burial, the interment of Jesus matters. And what we're reading in this passage today is the graveside service of Jesus. I've done many graveside services over the years. Just did one a week ago of a dear friend who was part of our church. When I came, when I came here 32 years ago, Steve Edmonds was a member of our church then, actively serving the Lord. And he served for years here. We had Steve's graveside service. I've been to many, many graveside services. And graveside services, by their nature are very often brief. They don't last very long. But they're not often rushed. This one, the tomb service, the graveside service of Jesus, was rushed. Here's why. Look at verse 31 again. The Jews knew that uh, the Sabbath was coming. They, They needed to get this done before the Sabbath arrived. And so the same principle of adhering to the laws of the Sabbath applied to, to those who were burying Jesus. Now we, we know that Jesus was crucified in the morning at 9 a.m. He was nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. He was on the cross for six hours and he died at approximately 3 p.m. on Friday on the Sabbath or as the Sabbath was getting ready to come on Friday evening. Sabbath would begin at sunset on Friday and so Sunset would arrive at about six o'clock, maybe a little after. If he died at three and Shabbat or Sabbath begins at six, they have at the most, a little more than three hours, they have about three hours to get him off the cross and get him into the tomb, okay? They don't have much time. And so their services to him, uh, their care of his body is by requirement, it is rushed. And so you'll be pleased to hear, by the way, that in the, in the spirit of that reverent brevity of a graveside service, I'm going to be brief in my remaining comments to you today, okay? I just want to share just a few observations about his burial, and then we're going to be dismissed and we'll leave here today thinking about the great celebration that will come next weekend when we celebrate his resurrection. Before we make those observations, can I get you to do with me today what I asked you to do last week? And I said it's a little bit elementary, but it's important for us to acknowledge this. You know, last week we learned together that when we look at the cross, we should say, he did that for me. Because Christ crucified, as a historical fact, is true, but it's not terribly transformative. But Christ crucified for me is transformational for my life. When I realize that the suffering of Jesus was about me, that I deserved the death because I was the sinner, he didn't because he's sinless. When I position myself through the lens of scripture and I look at the cross and I see the thorns on his brow and the wound in his side and the nails in his wrists and his feet, And I see his body hanging there. I can do that through the scriptures. And when I look at it, I am forced to say truthfully, that's for me. He did that for me. And when I know that he did it for me, it changes everything about about me. So I want you to say that out loud. We did it last week. Would you say with me, he did this for me? Would you do it? He did this for me. Maybe you've never articulated that about the cross of Jesus before. Today's the first time. Say it again. He did this for me. He really did. And that's important because when I recognize that Christ was crucified for me, it inspires in me a boldness for his name. I want you to write this down Christ crucified for me inspires boldness. The Bible tells us that there are two men who attend to the body of the crucified Christ. One is named Joseph of Arimathea. All four gospel writers tell us that Joseph is the one who was responsible for taking the body of Jesus and having it properly buried. Joseph of Arimathea. There's a second man that's involved in his burial. Only John gives us the detail that he was involved and his name is Nicodemus and all of you know the name Nicodemus from John chapter number three. Nicodemus and Joseph are the two men who took the body of Christ to have it buried. Now, we know a lot about both of these men. The Bible tells us much about them. It tells us, first of all, that both of them were wealthy, influential leaders in their community, in Jerusalem and in the nation of Israel. Both of these men were spiritually minded Men. And by that, here's what we mean. The Bible says in all three, I think, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of Joseph, that he looked for the kingdom of God. That is, he looked for the Messiah to come. And he recognized that when Jesus came, he was the Messiah. John tells us about Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night and said to him, we know that you have come from God because you're doing miracles that no man can do unless God was with him. Nicodemus was spiritually minded as well. He was looking for Christ the Messiah to come. So they're both wealthy and influential men. They're both men who are spiritual leaders. In fact, Jesus called Nicodemus a teacher in Israel. They also are both men who at some point had offered timid defenses of Jesus. Neither one of them had been consenting to his death when the Sanhedrin met to condemn him to death, but they had also offered timid, um, reserved defenses of him earlier in his ministry. And as I mentioned, neither of them consented His death. Look at verse number 38, where the Bible says this very telling, it's a very descriptive uh, uh, word about Joseph. It says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea came, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. Stop right there for just a second. He was a disciple of Jesus, meaning he believed in Jesus, he was a follower of Jesus, but he was scared. You listening? He was afraid of what following Jesus would mean for him. And so he kept his faith in Jesus a secret. He kept it to himself. Nicodemus, the same. He believed in Jesus. You're a man come from God. You have to be from God. But Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, under the cover of darkness, because he was timid. He was afraid. These are two men who were secret disciples of Jesus. Can I ask you a question? Are you... Are you a secret disciple? You're a follower of Jesus. I mean, you've trusted Christ as your Savior. You're confident that heaven is your home, but you're so afraid of what taking a bold stand for Christ would mean for you. Like, if you determine I'm gonna live my life completely for Christ, I'm gonna make my bold stand, I'm gonna stand with Him in all things that I do in this world, well, that might have some negative repercussions on my job or with some of my friends or on my campus, or what will people think of me? And so like Joseph and Nicodemus, you're afraid. But something changed when they saw Jesus hanging there. Man, when they saw the, the limp body of Christ on that cross, they knew he did that for me, and a boldness rose up in them. And the Bible says that Joseph went to Pilate and boldly demanded the body of Christ. <laughs> He went to Pilate and said, don't you take the body of my Lord and throw it in the trash heap. I love him. He matters to me. His body is precious to me. I will bury him even in my own tomb. You see, they became bold in their faith when they realized Christ died for them. If you and I will realize how much he loved us and gave for us, then we will rise up in boldness and timidity will fall off. Of our lives. The second thing that I that I discover in these two men is that Christ crucified for me commands generosity. It makes us generous people. Both of these men demonstrated great generosity toward Christ and His cause. Now, the Bible says that Joseph purchased expensive, fine linens to bury the body of Christ in. John tells us that Nicodemus purchased enough myrrh and aloe and spices to bury a king. You might remember that when Jesus was born, born, three Persian kings came and brought gifts to him, and one of those expensive gifts was myrrh. So Nicodemus goes to great expense to provide Jesus with what would be a royal uh, entombing, a royal funeral. Matthew 27 tells us that Joseph offered Jesus his own tomb. The tomb that Jesus was buried in belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. And it wasn't a normal tomb. Now, most people were buried in that day. Even respectable burials happened in caves. On your family property, there would be a cave. You would take the, the body of your loved one, put it in the cave, put the bones in an ossuary. And it was, that's where tombs were, were in caves. Not in Joseph's case. Why? Because Joseph is a wealthy man and he's not going to be buried in a cave. He has his own tomb hand cut out of the rock. You didn't do that unless you had great wealth and went to great expense. And he took his very own very expensive tomb and he put it, or he put Jesus in his tomb. My point is that because they knew Jesus had given so much for them, they were very generous in how they treated his body and buried him and invested in his name and his cause. you know what I've learned about Jim Dykes over the years? Can I give you a little? Can I be transparent? That I am the most generous when I am the most aware of what Christ has done for me. There's something miraculous that happens when my focus is not me and what I do for him, but rather him and what he's done for me, my hands open up, my heart opens up, I become this generous person because it's not about me, it's about Christ and his great sacrifice. And I believe the same thing will be true for us, for you. That when we think about and we realize what Christ has done for us, we will live with generosity. In 1707, Isaac Watts wrote the glorious hymn, When I survey the wondrous cross, and the last verse of that hymn says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. When I realize that Christ was crucified for me, I can be bold in my faith, and I can be generous in my life. Thirdly and lastly, Christ crucified for me fills me with hope. Christ crucified for me fills me with hope. Look at verse number 42. Verse 42 says, they laid Jesus in the tomb. I'm gonna go out on a limb. You've never known me to go out on a limb before, have you? I'm gonna go out on a limb. I'm gonna tell you something that I think, I don't know for sure, but I think this is true. I'm gonna speculate. That when verse number 42 talks about they, the people who buried Jesus, that it means more than just Joseph and Nicodemus. There were some other people who were present. Now, I don't think other people were present. I know other people were present because the other Gospels tell me that they were present. And do you know who they were, the other people that were present? Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary Magdalene. And other women, we don't know exactly how many, but some other women who had come from Galilee with Jesus to Jerusalem, and now Jesus has been crucified. Those women participated in the burial of Jesus. They were present at the tomb. And I know that if Mary was there and her son was being prepared for burial, she's involved with that. She's got her hands on her boy, and she's getting ready to bury him. Now, you, you, uh, you remember that this happened very hastily, right, because they only have a short amount of time. They have to be home before sunset. They have to be there before Shabbat dawns when the sun sets. And so they're hurrying and, and they, they bring the, 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 the linens that, that Joseph purchased and they bring the myrrh and the aloe that, that Nicodemus has brought and they, they wash the body of Jesus with their tears probably more or as much as with the water. They, they wash the body as quickly as they can. They begin to anoint it with the spices and the aloe. They begin to wrap the body in the burial strips of cloth, not a sheet, but cloths, sometimes called swaddling. Clothes. the same strips of cloth that he was wrapped in at his birth the same kind of strips they begin to wrap him in those and do you think that as Mary wraps the body of her son she remembers wrapping him 33 years earlier When they would wrap a body for burial, they would wrap it in these strips of cloth. And you sometimes think of a mummy, like it comes all the way up and over the face and the head. It's not the way it happened. They didn't cover the face. It's swaddling clothes. Think of a a baby swaddled. When you swaddle a baby from the foot all the way up, you swaddle it tightly, but you don't cover the baby's face in, in the blanket or the sheet. The face remains uncovered. I'm convinced that Mary is participating and she's wrapping. And as she's wrapping his body and helping, she's just looking at his face. And she's remembering the first time she saw that face. And she's weeping over the death of her son. And the last thing that they would have done... The shadows are coming in, the sun is setting, they've got to finish, they've got to roll the stone, they've got to get away. I am certain that Joseph and Nicodemus had to pull Mary away. Come on, Mary, we've got to go. We'll come back Monday morning, or Sunday morning, we'll come back after the Sabbath, but we've got to go. And they pull her away. But the last thing they did, are y'all listening? Is that they would have taken the napkin, just the face covering, not wrapped it, just the napkin that laid softly over the face. Look at John chapter 20. We read about the napkin after the resurrection. John 20 verse number 7 talks about the napkin that had been about his head or on his face. The last thing they would have done, the last sight that Mary would have seen of her son is that they would have laid that napkin over his face and she would have walked away. And and I know that Joseph would have said to her, You'll see him again. We'll come back Sunday. As soon as Sabbath is over, we'll come back. We'll finish. I know we're not done. We'll finish, but you'll get to see him again. And she left that tomb with this hope. Are you listening? This hope that at least on Sunday morning when we come back, I'll get to move that napkin and see my son's face at least one more time. (laughs) She had no idea what Sunday morning would dawn and would bring to her. She rolled, or she left, and they rolled the stone in front of the door, and she made her way back home with a little bit of hope. She didn't understand how much hope she would have, just with some hope. And I want you to know something, because Christ was crucified for me. I have hope. Amen. I have hope. You know what it is? It's not that I'll see his face one more time for a moment in a tomb. It's that I will see him face. To face and I will be called up to be with him in the heavens and forever I will live with him and if you know Christ we will be together with him this is the hope of Easter this is the hope of the burial of Jesus because Sunday morning is coming and the resurrection is real amen but Christ crucified as a historical fact means almost nothing but Christ crucified for me Means everything. And I wonder do you know that Christ was crucified for you?